Greetings and apologies for the hiatus. In this season opener of Great Connections, we speak to John McElroy, the founder and president of Blue Sky Productions, although probably more famously known as the main host of Autoline After Hours. Some of the listeners for Great Connections probably know that's actually how I got my start in broadcasting and also the beginning of what kind of led to the formation of this podcast. In this episode, we talk about some of the current things going on in the auto industry, ranging from the UAW strikes to the evolution of electric vehicles in the domestic and especially the big three auto manufacturers, along with some of the upcoming challenges and what all of these different impacts will have to the average consumer and where the industry is trying to go long term. And my apologies in advance to audiophiles for my audio quality on this. It's still very listenable, but it has since been addressed the issue that happened on this episode. Please listen. Well, good afternoon, everyone on Great Connections. I want to thank you for joining us for the kickoff of our newest season. And today we have a special guest, John McElroy of AutoLine. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, why don't you kind of just give us a little more information. I would be surprised if our listeners haven't been familiar with your work, but would love to learn more about you and AutoLine in general. Sure thing. Uh, I, I don't know how much history to give you here, but uh, you know, I got out of college way back long ago in the last century. And I thought, okay, now what do I want to do? And uh, you know, I was a pretty good writer in college and they always tell you, write about what you know. And I knew a thing or two about cars. So I thought I, I should work for a car magazine. And I, I literally wrote to every single car magazine that publishes in English anywhere in the world and essentially said, here I am. And I, I'll make a, a long story short and say, yeah, I got into the business. And I ended up at a trade magazine called Automotive Industries, which traces its roots back to 1895, when it was then called the Horseless Age. And I always wanted to change the magazine's name back to the horseless age. But in any case, it was a trade magazine. So we really got focused on the industry. And even though I'm a hardcore enthusiast and uh, love to drive fast, race, work on cars, all that, uh, as I got more and more into learning about the industry, I was like, holy moly, the industry is more interesting than the cars, including the people that are in the industry. And so I've kind of been, you know, a student of the industry ever since and love all aspects of it, you know, anything and everything. So I don't specialize in any one area. I just try to learn anything and everything I can. Um, I was in the corporate world. Uh, I did very well in that. Um, but yeah, about a, 25 years ago, uh, this is probably the, the mid 90s. I went, oh, this, this thing called the Internet it's going to kill print. And here I am in a, a monthly print magazine, not just a, a print magazine, a monthly one. And it was like, oh my God, I, I got to get out of this. And so I quit my job and it was a pretty good gig. And I went off on my own uh, with, a, I had a couple of business partners at the time with this little production company called Blue Sky Productions. I now own the company. And so we produce Autoline Daily. We produce Autoline After Hours. We go to all different kinds of shows and, and do coverage of that. Uh, we put out uh, videos, uh, uh, you know, some of it's just you know me ranting about what I think is going on in the industry. But anyway, in a nutshell, that, that's who I am and what I've been doing. 
Well, thanks. Uh, I, like I said, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar, but just in case, uh, good to have the background. And uh, I, I didn't know about the horseless age. That does sound like a great, uh, I think even more so with some of the topics we'll be talking about today around uh, autonomous electric vehicles. But um, one of the things I'm kind of curious about, since you are in the industry is around kind of more the journalism side and I, I think the call out that you mentioned around the uniqueness of like the actual manufacturing and the industry versus the cars that most people know about. What are you seeing as like some of the gaps in uh, automotive journalism and coverage maybe in general, uh, but especially I think with the area that you cover? Yeah. Um... By and large, this is not totally true, but by and large, there are not a lot of automotive journalists who, like I do, look at the whole industry. They tend to specialize, usually in cars. And even in that, it's it's kind of siloed. So you have uh, people who are into covering the new models that the, uh, the automakers are coming out with. Uh, you have people who are interested in trucks, you know, and that's all they talk about. Um, or in modifying vehicles, tuning, or, you know, crafting them into to something altogether different, you know, the whole resto mod thing that's going on. And um, now, th this is me talking, right? I I'm not telling yeah. them what they should be doing, but I'm often uh, surprised at how little they all know of what else is going on in the industry. And uh, so that that's where I see some of the gaps is... Uh, people who are very expert in their area and, and God bless them for being like that and being into it. But I'm often surprised at uh, their lack of knowledge of what's really happening, what's really going on, where it's all going. And, uh, you know, for people who are totally into cars, uh, for example, they, they, they don't seem to really be aware of this massive transition that's going on in the industry right now. And I'm not even sure the legacy automakers are going to survive it. You know, I, I could see by 2040, a lot of the, the biggest car companies in the world no longer exist or are far smaller than what they are today. And I, I think a lot of automotive journalists are missing what's going on. Yeah, actually, um, it's funny you should mention that because one of the people that we'd had on the uh, show before, his name's Kyle Connor. He does a lot of kind of electric vehicle um, I think you could even say like torture testing, but especially for like uh, chargers uh, domestically. And he was recently at the uh, German auto show and his takeaway along with some of the other people that were there were they kind of are consistently surprised with the almost not so much that they don't get it, but it seems like every year that they've gone to it, it seems like the uh, speed at which they are trying to move forward to electrification is actually not going as fast as they said it was going to be the year before, if that makes sense. Oh. And since, since you were just there, I'd be kind of curious to hear your thoughts on what your experience around that was or um, anything that really stood out to you with that conference and especially in the larger industry and with all these transformations going on. Yeah, you know, they, they call that show the IAA or as they pronounce it in Germany, uh, the EAA. So if you want to be cool and talk like you yeah. know what's going on, call it the EAA in Munich. And uh, the the German, well, look, let's take another step back. The Frankfurt Auto Show used to be the biggest auto show in the world. It was gigantic, gigantic. There was something like four convention center build, or not four, 
12 convention center type buildings, each jam-packed. Mercedes-Benz had its own building. BMW right. had its own building. And, and, and then the whole thing collapsed. And just like most auto shows uh, around the world. So anyway, they, they've revived this, the EAA in, in Munich. And uh, at this year's, uh, the, the presence of the Chinese was very notable. There were more Chinese car companies exhibiting in Munich than there were German car companies. And uh, that, that was an eye-opener. And it, it wasn't just uh, that. It was Chinese suppliers of all kinds of different uh, components. Not all electric, but mostly battery makers, too. BYD had a big battery display in addition to its cars. CATL and Goshen and uh, other Chinese battery makers there. And yeah, the, the Germans, uh, uh, they, they haven't, I don't think... Uh, totally awakened to reality yet maybe they have and we don't we're, we're not seeing it of what's right. truly going on inside but you know their evs are uh dual purpose platforms that can go ice or bev or even hybrid or or, or PHEV. but they you know uh chase as you know i've been saying all along and i'm not the only one saying this if you're really going to go up against the teslas and the byds of the world you got to bite the bullet and go clean sheet all the way. You have to design a purpose-built uh, EV. You've got to use uh, all these new manufacturing techniques that largely Tesla has pioneered. You have to dedicate an assembly plant to making only BEVs. And the Germans aren't there yet, pretty much. And uh, they have also, I think, made a, a big mistake in as they try to transition to software-defined vehicles using digital twins, and all the good stuff that everyone's working on, they've put legacy uh, ICE-experienced executives in charge of those efforts, and it's not going to work, and it hasn't worked. You know, Volkswagen has launched this massive effort to uh, to, to develop its software capabilities under a, a business entity that it calls Carryad. And uh, as I like to say, Carryad done blowed up on the launch pad. It's been a yeah. it's been a complete disaster. And so uh, having said that, uh, Mercedes is doing a relatively decent job of selling EVs, I think, in the United States, uh, something like 12 percent. You know, so one out of 10 cars that Mercedes is selling right now is electric. I think BMW is actually close to that. Um, Audi is at half that rate. Volkswagen is even less than that. Um, so they're they're sort of making do right now, but uh their efforts are not going to win the war. Uh, not not yeah. what they've got in the showroom right now is not going to get it done. Yeah, um, it's it seems to be kind of the theme I've heard from everyone. I, I haven't been personally, but everyone that I've talked to that has been the last couple of years, and especially this year, that seems to be kind of the theme. Um, and I think one thing I'd be interested in, and I, one of the uh, reasons I find your show really uh, powerful and really entertaining in educationally and sometimes just with uh, the different opinions you have on the show is I think I probably started listening about six or seven years ago. And obviously I had a, I've had a lot of exposure to EVs and been really into that side of stuff. And I, I do love internal combustion vehicles. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that as well, but um, I'm, I think what's really interesting and I kind of want to get your thoughts on this is when I first started listening, I always, and about six or seven years ago, it seemed like, I, I don't want to say you were bearish, but you were not 
a big fan of EVs and oh, I, you're, and being, you're being polite. You, you're being polite. No, I, I, I and I think, I think, Oh, I, I'm just going to say, I think you, uh, you had very, it was always a lot. It was sometimes things I disagreed with, or I would think sometimes like little bit misinformed just, and once again, maybe because of my exposure to things, but it was always a very logical and a very understandable argument. Um, and I, I guess I shouldn't say misinformed even. It was just like, I think just different exposures. Yeah. And, uh, and, but it was, it's been so fascinating to like hear. And I think this is why your show is so great because it is industry focused is now I've seen you kind of, I don't want to say switch sides to being completely pro EV because you know that there are, it still has its own issues, especially with the larger um, industry and trying to get that uh, some of these legacy automotive OEMs to move over, but it's really kind of been entertaining to watch you almost be a proponent of it because you're seeing how the industry is changing, especially on the global side. Um, and then on auto line after hours, you'll still have um, some of these people that you even kind of reference that maybe are only in a small facet of the industry or kind of maybe stuck in their ways. Uh, and so to see both sides of it, but I, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what, what has really stood out to you about this change and what, um, if there were ever any like light bulb moments for you, that really made you start like, okay, there's, this is no longer a bit of a fad or a niche. This is the future. Yeah, sure thing. No, no, it's a good story. It's a journey, really. Yeah. And so my first exposure to electric cars was with the GM EV1. And uh, yeah. you know, you GM go. didn't even design that car. It was done by Aero Vironment, by a guy uh, who ran it called, uh, oh, what's his first name? I'm blanking out on it. Anyway, Paul, Paul McCready. Paul yeah. McCready, if anyone knows anything about, he's like the American Da Vinci. The guy was amazing. He's since passed away. But uh, his team did, uh, they, they called it the, the impact. And uh, right, GM right. worked with them, and but they essentially developed it. Then they gave it to GM. GM uh, productionized it because, you know, even though these uh, uh, you know, almost prototype shops are really good at building one, it's yeah, you got to know people who have people on it who really know mass production. And, and so GM took it over. And I drove very early mules of that. Mules are development cars um, out at the GM Proving Grounds here just outside of Detroit. And I flipped out. I mean, I was knocked out by the car. Uh, it only held two people. I think it had something like a, a 60 or 65 mile range. It was lead acid batteries. Even so, I love, and and that's my first experience with regen braking. And they actually had, right. a, and the mules, they had a dial. So you could quickly, on the center console, you could quickly dial in the amount of regen that you wanted. And I fell in love with that immediately. And I thought this car was going to do terrific. And they put it in the market, if, if I remember rightly, only in California and Arizona. And it was like the cars were nailed to the showroom floor. They were salesproof. I mean, they went nowhere. <laughs> and uh, GM pulled the plug on the program, to use an EV pun there. I think they made a huge mistake. I think they should have stuck with the car. Uh, remember, GM at the time had a, a, a owned a part of Suzuki. Suzuki had this little terrific three-cylinder engine. They should have made that available too. So you could go electric yeah. or ice and just get some sales volume, keep the program going and, and the like. But yeah, I forget, not, not, not to cut you off, I forget the details because I know a big part of it was it was leased 
too. Yeah, so they would like, not sell it, right? Yeah, you had to lease it, and it was pretty right. pretty pricey for for cars right. of the time. That's true. You know, I, I think it was a three hundred dollar a month lease, which back then was like yowza. Uh, which nowadays you, you would fight for. Oh, yeah, what a bargain, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, but um, but it didn't happen, and that's when I realized. Uh, and, and they they did this because of California's ZEV requirements, zero emission vehicle requirements. But it showed me the market was not ready for these things, even though I thought it was a really cool car uh, and couldn't get one here in Michigan. Um, it, it was very clear the market had no interest in it. And then, you know, fast forward to uh, Tesla and the Roadster, that was sort of an interesting to me. But the Ro Roadster was, you know, the, all they were taking was uh, a Lotus, gutting it, putting in batteries. And OK, it went fast. And that was pretty cool. And that got our attention. Um, but it wasn't until the Model S came out that I thought, now this is this is a really well done car, but the company's losing money hand over fist. Right. And and that's always been the uh, the roadblock to anybody trying to break into the automotive industry. It takes mountains of cash. It takes armies of engineers. It takes uh, all kinds of high production manufacturing facilities, and it it, it requires car dealerships coast to coast. And, and that's a huge hurdle to overcome. And here was Tesla trying to jump over all those hurdles and do something different, but it was bleeding red ink. And this went on for years. And so when the pro-Tesla people would come to me and say, oh yeah, but look at Tesla's doing this and doing that. And I go, who cares? They're losing so much money. And you know, it's it's pretty obvious they're going to go bankrupt. They, they can't continue to lose money like this. Uh, and they almost did go bankrupt. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it came yeah. very, very close. If you read the Tim Higgins book on on Tesla and Elon Musk, I mean, he, even though Elon denies it, uh, Higgins laid out a pretty compelling uh, narrative of how Tesla damn near went bankrupt. I think 2016, 2017, something like that. But then they turned the corner in 2019. And yeah. even in 2018, I said, look, if this company, meaning Tesla, turns uh, a net, not not a, a gross profit, a net profit, not a non-gap profit, but a right. gap profit for the full year, I, I will come out and admit that they're here to stay. In fact, when they did do that, when they did accomplish that, I got on the air and I said, hey, welcome to the club, Tesla. You've absolutely earned it. And from that point on, they just took off. And it was like, well, okay, how come they're all of a sudden so profitable? Well, in the auto industry, it's all about scale. Once you hit that magic number, which is roughly 80% of capacity utilization, every unit that you build over that, every car that you build over that, or truck or van or whatever, is pure profit. I mean, you become a money right. machine. But then I started to learn from people like Sandy Monroe and uh, CareSoft more of what was going on from a design engineering and manufacturing standpoint. And the more I got into that, the more I was blown away because it was very clear Tesla was doing something that the legacies were not doing. And in fact, really could not do. And still to this day, pretty much cannot do. And it, it's because they have all these legacy systems. They have all these legacy suppliers. They've got, they, I mean, they've, and they've got billions, billions, billions invested in it. So it's almost impossible for them to walk away from it. But in any case, you're absolutely right. I knew every reason why EVs were going to fail 
Tesla proved me wrong. And uh, now I've become, I'm not going to say uh, an evangelist for electric cars, but you know, they're clearly the future. But what I have become, I would say, is an evangelist within the legacy auto industry to say, ding, dong, ding, dong, knock, knock, knock. Yeah. You guys better wake up. Uh, uh, changes are coming. And what you're doing right now is not going to get you through to the other end. Yeah, and I, I, I completely agree with that because I think um, a lot of the people who made the argument against Tesla or the new EV startups, it's generally been, I don't want to say unlogical, but there's definitely, I think this is becoming even more true, the political element. There's just a lot of things that are more, uh, the arguments were more on hearsay or stuff like that, whereas I think you've always approached it from a factual kind of standpoint and exactly using the numbers of their uh, uh, balance statement and everything like that totally makes sense. And that is like, once that's kind of flipped, you're starting to see it with others. And I completely agree on around the challenges of not doing a clean sheet. Uh, I think Ford's done a pretty good job for not doing that with like the lightning. Yeah. Um, right. But it's still pretty spendy. And it just shows like the more you can get away from that and do something by itself instead of trying to be multiple. Uh, products in one or modal, right. uh, multiple product platforms in one, the more successful you're going to be. Yeah. Um, well, just to finish your thought there, look, yeah. um, around 2019, 2020 is when GM made the decision that it was going to go clean sheet and, and do its Ultium platform. And uh, Ford, which had been going through uh, several CEOs at the time, right. didn't right. have direction as to where it wanted to go. And so when it sort of, when, when Farley was made uh, CEO of the company, it was like, hey, dudes, we've got to come out with something as fast as we can, and it's got to be good. So we put a small team together and uh, they did the Maki and, and the Lightning. And I think they did a fantastic job with what they had to work with in the time frame they had. But don't judge Ford's efforts on those EVs. Totally. They're, they're, they're clearly just a stopgap measure. And Ford is working on total clean sheet stuff, but it's not going to be out until 2025 or 2026. Right. Uh, no, no, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think uh, as far as like the legacy domestic uh, OEMs, they're, uh, it's better just get in the market, even if it's not the perfect product right now. And I think right. there's, there's already been clear improvements. Um, with that. And I guess since we're, before we start getting into some of the more uh, interesting uh, events going on right now in the auto industry, I, I think since we're on the cars, I do have two questions for you. Just one, I know you're a big uh, motorsports and combustion engine guy, which I like to think I am too. So right now I'm curious, because you do get to test drive a lot of vehicles. What for you is your favorite, maybe in the past year, even kind of like newer combustion engine vehicle you've tried and then i'd be curious to hear like what your favorite ev you've tried in the past year is too yeah sure thing so uh and you're going by memory i you know you should know i probably test drive i don't know 70 to 100 cars a year so i almost need the whole list of what i didn't <laughs> tell you right but what comes right to mind is the honda civic r i mean I just took to that car immediately. It passed what I call the 100-yard test. I mean, before I'm even out of the parking lot here at the studio, before I've even gone 100 yards, I'm like, damn, this car is excellent. And uh, there's not a whole lot of cars that pass the 100-yard test, but that's certainly one of them. And then as far as EVs go, 
Um, have any past yard tests for you? Yeah, I mean, the lucid air is is, is yeah. brilliant, you know. But I drove the launch edition, and I don't know, that was 170,000, 180,000. Anything that costs that much, of course, should be fantastic, right? Right, and and so I'm, I'm much more interested in cheaper, inexpensive EVs because those are actually harder to do. It, totally. it, if you're going to sell a car for $170,000, the engineers know they can do anything and everything they want with it. If you're going to sell a car, you know, for under 40, an EV for under 40 grand, yowza, that's hard to do. I'm mean, actually pretty impressed with the, the Chevrolet Bolt. I think it's a, it's a pretty decent car, but you know, look, it, it's not a clean sheet car. And, and with that, I, I think I would say, uh, the, the Model 3 uh, performance or even the Model 3 long range. Wow, what a car. I, I don't like the uh, the silhouettes and the, the proportions of the Model Y or the X, but I, I, th I think the S and the 3 are terrific. I, I have a Model Y as a daily. I wish it looked okay, more like yes. Model 3. Sorry. Oops, oops, I shouldn't have but, said that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I'll I, be the first to agree with you on that one. But um, as like a daily, it's it's great. And if it mm -hmm. wasn't for the fact that we had two dogs, I I think I'd have yeah, a yeah, 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 yeah. all day. Yeah, the but, Y's more uh, practical, right? Right, right. And I, I completely agree with you on the X. I, they took a really beautiful car and made it look way too bloated. Um, I think going from the S to the X. And it's funny you say the Lucid because I actually still haven't had a chance to drive one. And I've found everything I've seen as far as like the uh, engineering and the technology in it seems great. I just have not really. And I know some people, I just don't really like the styling of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, personally, it's not going to stop me if I get the opportunity to drive one. Just uh, the range and everything you get with it, I totally get it. Uh, but as far as. I think it's, I think they're kind of going back to like just getting sales and getting cars out the door. They are, even though in some ways, I think they have the most promising technology from a startup standpoint. I, I think they're just struggling to really break out. Like you look at what Rivian's done and I think they're probably going to be the only other startup really that has a strong chance of maybe not going as big as Tesla, but make kind of getting there eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And, uh, yeah, and a big part of that isn't even their technology. Uh, they're they're doing more in house, but I, I thought it was just really interesting. Like they start with Bosch motors; they didn't even have their own design, but they had a clean sheet for the rest of it. And I, I think that's really paid off with them just having more of a uh, whether you want to call it the Patagonia style or <laughs> kind of similar aesthetic. I mean, it connects and people like it. And uh, once again, you put that next to an X or a Y. I know what. I'm going to even choose, and most people are going to choose too when you look at that sort of thing. But now that we've kind of talked shop and all that stuff, is there, I think, <laughs> first, obviously going on right now is the UAW strike. And I think it's been one, officially one week now since it kicked off or pretty yeah, close to, I, was it Thursday? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I think as we speak right now, it's day six. Okay. Um I know on Autoline, you guys had talked about you weren't sure if it was going to be Stellantis. Can you maybe give a little uh, background for maybe people listening who don't know the full, uh, just kind of maybe leading up like the last month, and then what has surprised you in this first week of the UAW strikes and just kind of what you're hearing around Detroit and just the auto industry in general domestically? Well, I mean, well, I, I, I could talk for three hours on this, so uh, I'll try to truncate it here. <laughs> 
But um, look, Sean Fain, the the new president of the UAW, very different kind of labor leader. Not, not any, not unlike any I've seen in my career time. And this guy's out to save the working class. This guy is a traditional socialist unionist. Uh, he's absolutely uh, leading class warfare against the rich. Um, he feels his members have not been treated well financially, and he's out to, to right all these wrongs. And on, on many of those things, I actually agree with him a lot. These, these workers absolutely deserve a, way, uh, a raise, a, a significant raise. Uh, they probably deserve more profit sharing. Um, they need inflation protection, and they need some sort of job security. Although, really, job security comes from the marketplace. You know, it doesn't come from a company saying we're going to save you no matter what happens, because right. as I hinted at earlier, I, I don't know if you can count on General Motors to be around in another 15 years. It may not even exist anymore. So anyway, uh, because there's such a tight labor situation in the country, Sean Fain recognizes he's got leverage and, you know, the Teamsters got leverage. They just got a 46 percent raise with UPS. You're seeing what's going right. on at uh, Starbucks, for example, or the, all the organizing going on there or the attempts certainly at organizing at the Amazon warehouses and, and the list goes on and on. And so we're seeing a labor movement in this country right now that Sean Fain recognizes is it's now or never, baby. You know, this is our time. If we're going to ask for all this stuff, now is the time to do it. And he's... Uh, decided on going on a strategy unlike any of his predecessors used before, in which instead of targeting one of the automakers, either GM or Ford or Stellantis, he's going after all three. Historically, what the industry, what the union would do is pick uh, a target, as they called it, which would be one of the automakers, and then it would bargain with them. And once it got a contract with them, it was pretty much understood the other was, would fall in line with that. It was what they called a pattern agreement. And what Sean Fain has decided to do is, no, we're going to inflict pain on all three of them. And we're going to shut down profitable plants right now. And if they don't get the message from that, we're going to expand the strike. And uh, this coming Friday, uh, two days from now, as we record this, uh, he's he's going to expand the strike because... Uh, uh, I believed all along that Sean Fain had to have a strike politically uh, within the union. And the reason right. I say this is uh, he got elected uh, earlier this year, I think March is when the, the final election happened. 86% of the union members did not even bother to vote. Right. So only 14% of membership voted. And Fain won that election by 0.4%. So he got in by the slimmest of margins from a very small slice of the membership. And that's when I realized that plus his rhetoric, which was very anti-company, very anti-rich, very that there's going to be a strike. Because politically, he's got to show his membership that he took these car companies and pinned them to the mat. And, and twisted their arm until they cried uncle and he got all this stuff from them. So I'm saying the strike has got to go on for a minimum of two weeks. Minimum. Could go on a lot longer. Um, what I hope, though, is that Sean Fain sees the big picture. I don't think he does. I don't think his members do either, which is that they're competing against non-union auto plants, hiring, uh, employing uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Americans, all non-union. 
This is all the German companies, the Japanese, the South Koreans, all operating plants in America. They build millions of vehicles in the United States. And, and guess what? Last year, the Detroit 3 ended up with 37% market share. And I'm not sure the union is aware of all that. They just keep focusing in on their North American profits and saying, uh, you know, they, they got the money. And isn't it just disgusting how much they, they pay their, uh, their CEOs? And I'm not going to defend all that. All I'm saying is that uh, Sean Fain better be careful that he doesn't kill the golden goose that's laid all these golden eggs for the UAW members. Well, yeah, and one of the things um, that you have brought up kind of leading up to the strike, or at least Autoline seemed to be bringing up in general, was the idea that maybe instead of targeting all three, they would target Stellantis, uh, mm -hmm. formerly Chrysler, because it was kind of the non-now technically non-US-based company, and then they could kind of get in that way. Was that... Um, I mean, kind of leading up to it, I don't, I don't think anyone expected it. Like, probably, I mean, it's like the day or two before, it, it was kind of becoming more clear it wasn't going to be that. It probably was going to be all three, it seemed like. But um, did that surprise you too much, kind of, or? Y yes and no. I mean, um, yeah. look, uh, very early on, months ago, the rumor was out there that they were going to take all three companies down. But I don't think the union itself knew what its strategy was going to be. I mean, even Sean Fain has very openly talked about they, they had a lot of discussions in the union as to which way they were going to go. And I'm sure at one point the, they were talking seriously about striking Stellantis. But I think he wanted to do something totally different that none of his prede predecessors had done before. And, you know, he's calling these the stand-up strikes. Well, if you know your union history, what got the union going in the 1930s is they had sit-down strikes. So now he's got stand-up versus sit-down, you know, but there's a, a, a historical connection between the two. And I think he wanted to show uh, the automakers that he was not predictable. He was going to do something very unexpected, very different. And uh, so I think that's how they settled on their strategy of, of targeting all three, but but not taking them all down at once, just taking one plant each, also in different states, so that uh, you get maximum media coverage and you don't inflict all the pain on one state financially, because these strikes are going to hurt each and one, every one of these states financially. Their, their unemployment claims are going to skyrocket, uh, tax receipts are going to go down, it, it, it's going to hit these states. So anyway, uh, that's not going to stop Sean from expanding the strike. I, there's a minimum of one more round of shutdowns to happen. Yeah, and I, I did think it was kind of interesting. Um, I guess we could talk about what's going on right now. But like looking back and kind of to what you're saying about the golden goose and kind of what's going on in the industry on the larger side, it is interesting to me. And obviously, Sean Fain just became the union head, but in some ways, I almost feel like they they still have a lot to gain, but it almost would have been like if this had been a year, maybe even two years ago, they would have even been in a better position um, because interest rates had gone. Like everything in the auto, like while there would have been definitely issues with um, kind of what we're seeing the post-COVID and just kind of logistically, uh, as far as interest rates and sales and the profits, I think it really would have resonated and been a strong time for it. Uh, do you think it was more just the fact that the union was still kind of getting over previous uh, leadership and timing of it, or 
No, no, no. It, it's yeah. all got to do with the contract. They had a four-year yeah. contract, which expired this month. And, uh, and, and besides, there was no Sean Fain two years ago. Right, you know, right. You, you had what I'll call legacy union leaders who uh, would have been far more uh, cooperative with the automakers. And uh, I, I mean, they wouldn't have just rolled over and do whatever the car companies wanted, but they would not be as contentious or audacious as Sean Fain right. even describes his own efforts. Okay. And that, maybe that that is my own ignorance as far as there, there wasn't really anything they could do in between contract phases, like try and do an early negotiation or something when the a year or two ago it would have been illegal for them to do so okay. i mean the the, okay. the the car companies could have said look you signed this contract yeah. now you're breaking the contract right so i mean look they they've made their displeasure known and and for sure <laughs> and i think everybody agrees you know uh trying to hire somebody in at 16 dollars and 50 cents an hour to work in a factory no and yeah. uh to take eight years to go from full-time to the top of the pay scale? Well, what's this eight years about? Um, now, I, I know what it's about. Look, uh, the Detroit 3 have substantially higher labor costs than the transplants or Tesla. And that's before any of these raises are coming through. So they're already at uh, uh, a much higher cost compared to the other American non-union plants. And uh, this, this new contract's going to make the gap grow even larger. And uh, and that's what I mean about I hope Sean sees the big picture and that right. the union doesn't uh, kill the golden goose. I, last night I was talking to a supplier, uh, entrepreneurial guy, owns the business and all that. And his prediction is this is the last contract the UAW will ever sign with the big three because it'll drive them out of business. That'll be an interesting. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure I agree I mean, with that, but uh, yeah, yeah. this is not a stupid person who said it. This is right. this is somebody who's in the thick of the industry. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, looking at where it is and where it's going, do you see? I mean, it, it seems like it's anybody's guess right now, but it has been kind of interesting that, as you mentioned, the states are being uh, hit pretty hard that are affected by this because not only are they striking, the rest. Uh, some of the OEMs now have laid off the people that are in the factory or remaining in those factories anyway. So yeah, do you, I, or I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, sorry, I was just picking up on what you were saying. Yeah, I think this is something that the union did not anticipate, that uh, the car companies would start laying off people. So in here in Michigan, where I am, there's the Wayne assembly plant. It makes the Bronco and the Ranger pickup trucks. And so the union decided... We're going to strike that plant, but not the whole plant. All we're going to do is shut down the uh, the paint shop and the final assembly line. Well, uh, that plant has stamping operations. It has welding operations. And Ford said, well, <laughs> look, uh, there's no sense in these people coming to work if there's nothing to do. I mean, you know, you, you can't stamp all this stuff and uh, weld it all together. And then what? Well, it piles up, I mean, because we're not making – so we're laying off 600 people. I don't think the union anticipated that. And also when they shut down GM's uh, Wentzville plant in Missouri, which makes the Chevrolet Colorado and GMC Canyon, that plant also supplies stampings to GM's Fairfax plant, where they make the Cadillac XT4 and the Chevrolet Malibu. Well, GM said, look, we can't get stampings. We can't make cars. We're going to lay off all the people in that plant. I don't think the union expected that. Now, 
those people on layoff, Sean Fain has already said, don't worry, if they lay you off, we're going to pay you $500 a week. Uh, that's not enough for those people to right. live on. And 2,000 people on layoff at $500 a week, that's a million bucks a week that the union now has to pay out. At Ford with 600 people off, that's $300,000 uh, a week that they, they have to pay. I don't think they were anticipating that they would have to pay out that much money. And if I'm right this Friday, if the union shuts down more plants, undoubtedly the automakers are going to lay off a lot more people. It it does seem like, um, and I, I'd be curious because you're closer to this, just it, uh, there was a lot of suspense leading up to the strike, the strike has happened. And now it does seem like it is getting more contentious on both sides. Uh, the UAW obviously, and I think good or bad, and it's worth sometimes going about a different way, definitely came in much more aggressive than traditionally seen. And now we're also seeing the companies seem to be like, well, we gave you some pretty good offers and now they're kind of putting their foot down a little bit and pushing back harder. Do you think, is that a correct, well, I guess first, is that a correct um, understanding of what you're seeing and hearing in Detroit? And two, do you think that is either actually helping either side? Yeah. Um, number one, uh, Sean Fain came in with a much better plan. He knew where he was going. And he's been extraordinarily effective at communicating that. You know, he's doing live Facebook videos, which also get streamed on YouTube. You know, so boom, right off off the bat, he's he's communicating in a way that uh, that people communicate today. For example, Mark Royce wrote this very nice editorial in today's Detroit Free Press newspaper. Is anyone under the age of forty going to read that or see it? Is anyone under the age of 50 going to see that? Right. And, you know, Ford has been sending out uh, bullet points to us in the media on its side, but it's relying on the media, should it so choose, to, to report on this. Uh, so Sean Fain is absolutely controlling the narrative. He has uh, convinced just about everybody in the United States that UAW workers earn very poor wages and are desperately overworked and have been screwed over by the companies. I don't think any of that is true. They, they, they make far more money than most people realize or have a, a total compensation package that is far, far better than most people realize. And but But he has controlled that narrative. The automakers have been very bad at communicating. I, 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 I haven't seen anything from them that I think is credible. And maybe they'll they'll learn, but I'm not sure. They haven't done so yet. And so with Sean Fain controlling the narrative, uh, not only do his members in the union feel like they're, they're really getting cheated, the general American public is on their side. I mean, something like uh, I think the latest poll showed 70 to 75 percent of the American public agree with the union and, and side with the union. Um, and I do, too, to a degree. Like I said, I, they definitely should get the get more money than they're they're getting right now and a number of other things too. But but here's where I think something else might be going on. You know, as I said earlier, I was pretty sure there was going to be a strike the day that Sean got elected. And there has to be people at the car companies that realize the same thing too. Look, there's going to be a strike. And he's got to take down plants and he's got to inflict pain. So we, the car companies, if I, my thinking is, is right here, we've got to let them go ahead and do that. 
It's going to happen. Let's let them do that. So let's give them really, really good offers, but we're going to hold close to our vest the real true final offer that we're ready to go with. And we're not going to do that until we let him inflict enough pain where he has convinced his members, look, I took them down to the mat, I pinned them, I've got their arm twisted behind their back. And that's where I, I'm thinking, their thinking is. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting take. And I think that they're, <laughs> you know, neither of us are in those meetings. It just seems to be strategically how it's playing out and what we're seeing from uh, kind of the reactions on both sides to these events. Yeah, well, look, um, in, in any negotiation, you have to put your shoes in the side of the the, the, the team on the other side of the right. negotiating table. You have to understand where they're coming from and what they need. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it. But unless you understand what they need, you're never going to come to a resolution. I completely agree with you on that. Um, I guess before we change topics a little bit, is there anything else that you've been kind of uh, seeing or really that stands out of, to you about this strike that maybe we haven't covered or where it's going to go that um, you haven't, you think you have a different take on it than what you've been hearing? Uh, no, actually, I've got questions, Chase. I don't know how far uh, Sean Fain's willing to go. Does he really believe he should get a 32-hour work week? Does he really believe that full pensions should be brought back? Does he really believe they need a jobs bank wherein if uh, car sales go down and there's no jobs, you still keep paying these people, the jobs bank? Uh, uh, if he really believes he's going to get that stuff, then this industry, this domestic industry is in deep, deep, deep trouble. And because he's talked so openly about these things, I think he's convincing his members that that's what they're going to get. And I can tell you flat out right now, there's no way the car companies can agree to those three things. No way at all. That's what drove them into bankruptcy and it will drive them into bankruptcy again. So, but, or is he just throwing those things out there as a negotiating tactic? But he has thrown them out. Now, how does he bring his yeah. most rabid followers down off the you know, the, the high bar that they're on right now. How does he get them down to say, look, a 25% increase in wages is good enough, not 46%, uh, and so on and so forth. So that, that's, I think, going to be the real challenge. Uh, the reality that the Detroit automakers cannot agree to certain things he's asking for, and can he talk his membership back to back off from that? No, I, I think it's going to be, uh, I, I think that's really a great way to look at it. I'm, unfortunately, neither of us know the answer to it is to what level they're pursuing this, because if it is the former and he's all in on this, uh, this is going to probably go on for quite a while, Right. unfortunately, for a lot of people. And I'm not sure who's going to win out of it. Um, and talking about that, because of what the of this going on right now with the industry, um, we're seeing obviously the transformation to more electric vehicles. We're seeing, as you said, the transplants come domestically. Um, we're seeing new entrants with uh, plug-in hybrid EV, uh, electrified vehicles. What do you see as kind of someone who's got a pretty good pulse on the industry as what is going to be the bigger of the two? Because I, I feel like 
some of this conversation around the strike is like, okay, EVs have require less workers. And to some extent, that's probably true. But while they're striking, the rest of the world is still kind of going on. And so are the transplants domestically. And do you see, some people are saying that they see the others as the, win, the non-unionized as the winners before this thing has really even had a resolution. And I think they might have a point to that, that they can still kind of produce vehicles, they can keep moving forward. But do you think that there's a technology aspect to this as well um, that's going to really end up kind of either significantly hurting uh, the big three around electrification? And do you think uh, the answer needs to be them kind of going fully electric? Or is it kind of a bit of this foot in, foot out with the PHEV approach? Yeah, well, look, it's it's all going to come down to the marketplace. The marketplace yeah. is going to decide the winners and the losers. And as you know, like everything else in this country right now, all EVs have become politicized. And right. so if you're for EVs, you're probably a Democrat. And if you're a Republican, almost for sure you're against EVs. That's unfortunately what it's devolved to right now. And since the country is the split 50-50 down the middle, that's where we're at. And so the Biden administration has a goal of getting to 50% EV market share by 2030. Um, the EPA has come out with uh, ice emission rules that would push that to, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but 75, 80% by 2032. Well, I, I can tell you, just looking at the political division in the country, there's no way it's going to go over 50%. Not now. Not now. And so here's a quandary for the, the auto industry. It's a race to scale. Who can get to scale the fastest? Because once you hit scale, boom, your EVs are going to be profitable. And so only 50% of the car buying public is going to buy an EV because politically the other half, you can peel their cold dead fingers off their ICE before they give it up. And uh, so... It's a race to scale. Only X number of people are going to buy EVs. And if you're in remote rural areas, even if you're in favor of EVs, it's probably not going to fit for you. There's no infrastructure out there, at least not right now. And so there's the quandary for the industry. Um, it's going to lose billions of dollars until they hit scale. And so the race is on. Who can get those buyers out there that are are willing to buy an EV? And uh, I don't know what the answers are going to be to any of that. It, it It's a, a mad race. The race has already started. We'll probably have some clearer view of what's happening by the end of 2026, because that's when we're going to see second generation EV platforms second generation batteries, new battery chemistry. We're going to see far more uh, infrastructure in place, chargers, chargers that work even. Yeah. And uh, that's when we're really going to know what, what's the health of this EV segment in the United States. Yeah, no, I mean, you just brought up a bunch of great different topics. Uh, uh, I think I'll just sit on a few of them. We can kind of step yeah, yeah, yeah. their way, but I mean, uh, it, I, it was, I think this late past July, it had been one year since I'd had my car. And in that first year I had driven 31,000 miles and that's obviously way above the average. And as someone who right. works from home, really uh, above the average, because a lot of the time it was just kind of doing road trips and sometimes working remotely for a week or two. And I 
completely agree with that. Um, I, I think the idea to for the automakers in the EV invest that made the EV uh, investment to open up to Tesla superchargers or kind of put the pressure on the existing public charger is a hundred percent needed. Um, anytime, I I think the the biggest the biggest road trip I did in one day was from Bend, Oregon to Phoenix, which was about eleven hundred miles, and that was a long day but super easy, no problem. And I used the superchargers the whole way. The other road trip I did was from Ben to Sioux City, Iowa. And that was about 1,800 miles, I think, maybe 16 to 1,800 miles each way. And for the most part, I only used the superchargers, but along the way, there were some like the older V2 superchargers that don't charge as fast. And so there were a couple of times, it was a V2 charger in Electrify America. And every time I tried Electrify America, unfortunately, it and they clearly are not a sponsor of this channel. It just did not work. And when I finally got it to work, the amount of time it took to get the app set up or get something else figured, whatever time I saved by going to these slightly faster charters was completely gone. Um, completely gone, super annoying. And um, the one time that I finally kind of got it going I went in to use the restroom in this little convenience store. I think, I think it was like Wall Drug, South Dakota. So it's in a pretty remote place to begin with. And I get a notification on my phone that charging has stopped. And so I was like, what? I go back out there. Not only is it stopped, now it's like derated. It won't go even close to um, the other charger. So I ended up just driving down the street to the Tesla supercharger charging and never had an issue. <laughs> um, so I think the charging infrastructure is really the Achilles heel for any sort of, I think you're hundred percent right. I think it's totally doable, but it's really not doable unless you have a Tesla, which I understand is not, some people don't want to buy those. Totally fine. But it's just kind of a sad state of affairs. Cause even when you go to um, Europe, it's a much different story. It's not a hundred percent always as reliable, but it's, it's like, it's pretty much as reliable as going to a gas station. So I'm kind of curious on your thoughts as to, is there a way that that can change out? Because I, I think a lot of people have been holding off in this, uh, making the infrastructure investments because they're either waiting for IRA or government money to help kind of subsidize the cost. Is that the only way that this maybe changes or what, have, do you have any thoughts on what might actually get this situation fixed domestically? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um... It's going to be tough. And the reason I say it is for this, gas stations don't make their profit selling gasoline. Right. You know what the number one profit uh, item for a, a typical gas station is? Those so hot dogs. Make... Yeah, Those, I was going to say. Hot dogs. Exactly. Number one, and I know this. I know this because one of my brothers worked for a company that uh, serviced those machines. And he said that, that that's their number one profit. So they make that's you know, so funny. their profit selling hot dogs, lottery tickets, and cigarettes. That's where they make their profit, not from gasoline. Gasoline's look kind of like the lost leader. So now yeah. look at all these public charging stations. They're out in remote areas or they're in the parking lot of a strip mall or something like that. And all they sell is electricity. So their only way of making money is buying electricity at wholesale and marking it up for retail. That's the only way they can make money. And I don't personally believe that's a viable business model. You know, what you need is to get more gas stations putting uh, chargers where they're located 
And in point of fact, you know, the, the gas station owners are very, very uh, keen to do this because, you know, if you go to fill your tank, uh, you're there five to 10 minutes max and, you know, 10 right. minutes is, 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 is probably even unrealistic, but if you're there with an electric car, you're, you're there for at least 20 minutes, at least. So they know you're going to buy more stuff from them, but, um, you know, gas stations are franchises, you know, right. Exxon Mobil doesn't own that shell doesn't own that BP doesn't own it. Amoco doesn't own their franchises, just like McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King or whatever. And so it's up to those, that franchise owner, that franchisee to decide, do I want to spend all this money on electric chargers? And so it becomes for them a chicken and the egg thing. I don't see enough electric cars, so I don't want to put them in. And meanwhile, the, the people who want to buy electric cars are saying, I don't see enough chargers around. So to me, the solution is going to be somehow or other, you got to get gas stations putting electric chargers in and, uh, and maybe it becomes more of a viable business model, at least for the franchisees. But um, where does that leave the electric, uh, electrify Americas and the EV goes and the like? I, I'm not convinced their business model is viable. I agree with you. <laughs> Through my own personal experience, I hope to be proven wrong. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty sad state of affairs right now when it comes to that sort of infrastructure. I think um there's a lot of i think there's actually finally being a lot of great evs being made uh it's just whether can you have it as your primary car or is it a secondary car and if you don't have charging where you're living it becomes a almost yeah. a non-starter unfortunately right so we we had this this great guest uh the other day on autoline after hours eric uh eric noble from the car lab who's very skeptical that this EV yeah. thing is going to work. But he introduced the phrase SFR, single family residence. And he said, electric cars are only viable for people with a single family residence. If you live in an apartment or a condo where there's no place to charge in or no convenient place to charge in, it's not gonna make sense. If, if you have to rely on public charging, which A, number one in the United States is not that good. And B, like I said, they have to mark up the electricity most of them right. are marking it up to the point where it's no better than gasoline. It's, it's about the same cost for the distance that you travel. So at least for this decade, the only viable market for, uh, for EVs is going to be with uh, Democrats who live in a single family residence in uh, higher population areas, not rural ones. So I, it's funny you bring that up because I... Kind of, I think I used to agree with that more, but I feel like there actually has been a slight, once again, personal opinion, uh, yeah, personal yeah, yeah. experience. And I'm starting to see, I would say, traditionally more conservative people being open to uh, EVs. And I think, and, and, and to kind of break this down, there's, there's two parts to this. One was, I have a couple of friends that are like, no, I'll never buy an EV, but I get a Tesla, which I've always thought is really funny mm. because mm. They, they don't think... It has anything to do they just they, it's a sporty car they like the sportiness of it and with tesla releasing the cyber truck i guess soon um but they're i mean they're not the only one gm's finally kind of rolling out there uh, obviously it's very expensive they're silverados i am kind of curious how much that's going to change because the market really has only been able to it's still a large portion of the market but not serve a lot more of these rural areas or other communities that yeah you need a pickup or yeah you need yeah. this like 
now that there's finally that market penetration, I think that might change. But I, I am also curious with it still being politicized and with like the supply chain, it doesn't seem like that's going to be a um, very it, so far, at least from the traditional automakers, it hasn't been a cost-effective uh, proposition by going to an electric pickup truck. It's been more of a, like I said, like like you even said too, a luxury thing. And I think that's where Rivian kind of targeted the Patagonia sort of lifestyle brand of theirs very well. They kind of came in and like, yeah, you're on a lot of perks and it's going to cost a lot of money. But do you think that that has been a, a, a part of the reason that this hasn't been more... Um, I guess there hasn't been more penetration, I guess, in the conservative side of the demographic because there just haven't been, obviously, church is part of it, but there just hasn't been the actual products to kind of support sometimes a lifestyle for more rural areas. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think it's still early days of EVs. Like I said, uh, amongst all the legacies, with possibly the exception of GM, they all have ice-based EVs right now, ice platforms. Um, so it's not their best foot forward. And so, yeah, the range isn't what most people feel comfortable with. And uh, the charging time is longer than what most people want to deal with. I believe that's all going to get solved. I, I, I right. think in the 2026, 2027 timeframe, uh, EVs are going to become so compelling, especially when you couple it with uh, bi-directional charging that uh, people are going to go, damn, why would I want to buy an ICE? It, 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 the CV is a much better uh, proposition for me. And, you know, uh, especially as more and more of these stories get out, whether it's a, a hurricane or severe weather or an earthquake or something, people plug their EV into their home and they've got power for days. And and the, the bi-directional thing, I think, is, is going to be something that uh, will start to convince the ICE diehards and, and you know what that is, you know, where you as an EV owner can charge up your car at home when rates are low and then through a deal with your local utility, sell that electricity back to them when rates are high and have this arbitrage, you know, this this wheeling dealing where you may not have a, an electric bill at the end of the month. In fact, conceivably, there might be some months where you get a check from the utility. And I, I think once people start to realize that EVs uh, can power their homes, they no longer need a, a Generac generator, you know, right. chugging away when the electricity goes out locally, um, and where they can play this arbitrage and uh, greatly reduce their electric bill, who knows, maybe even eliminate it. All of a sudden, I think the, the economics of owning an EV will make owning an ice uh more expensive it'll be it'll be more expensive to own an ice vehicle and and people are driven by economics it will even overcome totally. political decisions well it's funny you say that because uh while i think the bi-directional technologies is really fascinating has a lot of cool potential i'm actually more bearish on it because of the cost um i think a lot of people kind of have the misperception that they can just kind of plug in to uh, their charger and it'll work um, and unfortunately, it's in, in a lot of newer homes that probably wouldn't be too far off. Right. But I, I think uh, even in my own experience, I have to do a panel upgrade for something else anyway. And that's probably going to be about six to seven thousand bucks. And it, yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, and if it wasn't for that, I 
and it, it's it's for a couple of reasons, but that's even uh, just to like kind of upgrade some of the other stuff we're trying to do in our house, let alone the bi-directional side of it. And mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of been the hidden cost that while the concept of bi-directional sounds great, uh, most homes just in the U.S. are not set up for it and require a pretty hefty bill to. Yeah, get. no, that great point, Chase. That that yeah. That's a great point. But I mean, I, I don't know. They're, and like you said, those Generac generators aren't cheap either. So that might be enough of a price delta that when they factor those in too. Um, but I think good or bad, I, I think that's something that a lot of people have been really interested in. I hope it works out. It's just with that and so many of these OEMs now, and I'm sure they have some sort of solution that'll be coming out soon, but going to like Tesla's North American charging standard plug, in theory, it should support it, but as of like today, it doesn't. So it's kind of like one more thing that kind of has to be figured out with the current systems in addition to, uh, and I, to be honest, I don't think that's that big of a thing. I think that can be figured out, but just the cost to make sure the house can actually take all of this. Um, and I, I think where we'll actually see this first is in Europe because just of how the wiring codes and stuff are, it's actually a lot easier to make a house bi-directional because of how they're wired from at least everything I've understood it as. Um, whereas uh, in the US between not only needing upgrades, just sometimes where the majority of houses are, um, the grid just isn't des- isn't designed in a way or it, most houses aren't attached to the grid in a way where it makes that really feasible uh, from day one. Yeah, no, so, the, all excellent points. I hope it gets better productized, I guess is what I'm yeah. trying to say. No, no, I, I think where it's going to happen in this country is on the commercial side. Yeah. Oh, for in fact, sure. I'm very, very bullish totally. on anything EV when it comes to commercial stuff, because uh, for typical package delivery, they drive a known route every single day or a known number of miles every exactly. single day. You can literally size the battery to the route and uh, and they all come back to the same yard every night. So uh, even though they can yard, charge at night cheaply, yeah, exactly where they can tra- and, and maybe do this bi-directional stuff, too. So um you know, there's uh, no, that's, that's that's a great point. I, I actually totally uh, agree with you on the commercial side. Like, I think the financials and the logistics of that seem infinitely easier. Um, and I think where we'll probably see this first before, unfortunately, uh, just because I can want to see it on the residential side. Yeah. No, I mean, look, fleets are interested in one thing from a business standpoint, total cost of ownership. Right. And if you say yes this EV is $20,000 more than the the delivery van you've got right now. But at the end of four years, you're going to save money. They'll pony up the money because they're interested in their total cost. And uh, same goes for bi-directional. So a quick little story. There was a a school system in Massachusetts, and I want to say New Hampshire was New Hampshire or Vermont, and they did an experiment uh, with bi-directional charging because their school buses are parked all summer long doing nothing. Right. And they, they, each system, school system, had uh, an electric bus or two. And so the story is told to me over the course of the summer, three months, they made $10,000 a bus in doing bi-directional charging. Uh, and so that, that, that number's got a nice ring to it. Exactly. Um yeah, I'm kind of curious with where EVs and kind of the commercial side uh, do make a lot of sense. And I think in the short term, especially, 
with, I guess I've got two questions to you. One with the recent uh, being at IAA and some of the other events, are there any companies or technologies that really stand out to you in that space? And then two, um, with interest rates the way they are, are you kind of hearing and seeing that on the commercial side, that's also starting to impact them pretty seriously like it has for uh, uh, personal car buyers? Yeah, I haven't heard anything uh, versus commercial fleets and interest rates. I, 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 it's got to be an issue for them. Anybody who yeah. runs a business that's got to borrow money, it's an issue. Um, the other things that I saw at the the EAA uh, were uh, fuel cell, a lot of fuel cell activity in Europe for long for long haul trucking and energy storage. I.e., make use solar when the sun's shining, wind when the wind's blowing. What do you do with that? You can store it in the battery, but now it's stuck in a battery. Or do you right. make hydrogen out of it, which is much more transportable? So a lot of activity going on there that was interesting. And then the other one um, was actually this uh, battery company in Michigan called One, which stands for Our Next Energy, which has come up with a LFP uh, battery design that where roughly three quarters of the battery is just a range extender for the, right. the one quarter, or maybe it's two thirds to one third or something like that. And it's an intriguing way of looking at how to use a battery, i.e., you know, most people, most people drive 40 miles a day max. So that's what that yeah. battery is for. The smaller battery is just back and forth. But then you've got this other bigger battery. So when you want to go on long trips and it's you don't run off the power of that battery. It's a range extender for the smaller battery. And so what uh, one is claiming is that they're going, they're, they're shooting for a six to 700 mile range. Or if you've got a pickup towing a trailer, you're going to get 350 miles range. And uh, that starts to make, uh, I, I think, batteries a lot more compelling for people who have range anxiety or towing sure. anxiety. Yeah, I've seen them on your show, um, and I'm definitely curious to kind of see it get productized more. Um, everything I've looked into, that, I've, and you probably know more, much more about it than I do, is just the weight of it is pretty insane. Because um, I think they put one in a, a Tesla Model S, and I, I can't remember the exact number of how much weight it added to it. Uh, but it was a considerable amount. Um, and I, I just am kind of, I feel like, that, I don't know, I, I would love to learn more and kind of maybe talk to them soon, but I'm just curious with, I feel like, yes, you can always pack more batteries into something and make something way more um, to get more range. And I, I just, uh, I think the Ethereum, it's really interesting, but I, I am still kind of not 100% convinced that you need to be carrying that much weight, especially if the majority of the things you're doing are the, I, I guess where I'm coming to is I'm not sure is that the future versus just a more power dense battery that we're seeing kind of like 15% in general is what like lithium ion kind of gets by or more effective chargers than carrying an extra ton around with you. Right. No, no, day. that's right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm not trying to, but it's, it, it is really unique. It is. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's kind of an interesting concept of like the range extended uh, hybrid we've seen, but it's actually just an old battery. Right. So, I, I, in fact, I asked yeah. Mujib Izaz, uh, uh, Ijaz, uh, the CEO of the company, th that, that very thing uh, that, that you're bringing up and he's, about the Tesla. And he said, look, that was a one-off. It was not optimized. 
you know, it's it's essentially an R and D battery. So right. what he's saying is, you know, you give us a car that we can purpose built this for, and and we, and we keep making progress on the energy density of uh, our battery. That's him talking. So, you know, it's uh, again early days in all of this. We're going to see tremendous totally. progress. I, I realize we're kind of already past the hour mark, but there there were a couple of things I want to talk to you really quickly that you've sure. uh, talked about on the show recently, and just how things have changed in about the last year, year and a half. And one of those big things uh, in how the industry is changing is autonomous vehicles and kind of where you see, uh, obviously, like Tesla's uh, full self-driving FSD gets all the headlines. But uh, I think those of us who are kind of in the automotive industry and focused on that do see some of the negative headlines that like Cruise and Waymo and others are getting kind of being in the Bay Area um, and having issues sometimes with uh, not necessarily causing accidents, but obviously um, not being the uh, larger benefit to society that they had pitched, they're pitched at as uh, sometimes. And so I'm kind of curious on your thoughts of how the autonomous driving uh, world has evolved in your view, kind of being a Michigan and just plugged into the industry and what you're seeing, because it feels like it's done a complete 180, if not nosedive. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, where you think even regionally, because I've seen you talk about on the show that you'd like to see them get out of San Francisco and maybe move closer to Detroit and do stuff like that. So I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on both of those. Sure. So I'm a huge proponent of autonomy. I, I believe autonomy is far more transformational than electrification. You know, electrification essentially changes the way you bring power to the wheels to propel the vehicle. I mean, I, I'm oversimplifying. It does a little more than that. <laughs> autonomy changes transportation. It opens up mobility to anybody, to little kids, to the very elderly, to people who are blind, to people who are physically uh, challenged. It, it, and I, it's going to change. It's going to have as much impact when when full autonomy comes, and it will, uh, as when the horseless carriage first hit society 120 right. years ago. I mean, it, cars changed the landscape, literally the landscape. I believe autonomy will do the same. I wrote my first article in uh, about autonomous cars in 1987. People don't realize there was actually a lot of work going on in autonomy at the time. But back then, uh, it required massive amounts of infrastructure. You had to put sensors in the road like every tenth of a mile. You had to have transponders at every intersection. You had to have a massive computer array to control everything. And nobody had the money to do anything like that. Yeah. And, and so it went nowhere until DARPA held the DARPA challenge. And boom, you know, they they opened it up to competition to anybody in the world and they they welcomed anyone to come in. And that's where we first started seeing LIDAR and 3D mapping and uh, uh, using the cloud to, uh, to help these cars navigate and a whole bunch of other things. And, and that's, that's an everyone off racing. And that was 2007? I, I can't remember yeah, exactly when the final say, DARPA challenge kind of was. Something like that. Uh, yeah. And, and then, the, you know, then uh, Google jumped into it. It was then Google X, now called Waymo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the rate of progress was phenomenal. And so everybody would look at their watches and said, oh, yeah, by, by 2019, 2021, boom, 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 we got this licked. It's, well, they were right. It, getting the first 98% nailed down uh, happened very quickly. Getting that last 2% 
where the car can deal with any kind of contingency, you know, what they commonly refer to as edge cases. Uh, that's really hard to do, really hard to do. <laughs> and so you've got Tesla that's been uh, at it. You've got GM Cruise at it. You've got uh, Waymo and Zooks, which is part of Amazon. Effort. And there's others out there too, but those I think are are some of the bigger ones everyone will recognize. In China, you've got Baidu and and a number of others going. I mean, they're, they're really pushing it in China. And so it, the race is really between the United States and China in, in developing this technology. And so, again, it's been really hard to do. In the last year, year and a half, Tesla has switched from using machine learning to uh, neural networks. And uh, now I'm getting in deep where, you know, I'm on very thin ice of what I fully understand here. But my understanding of it is with machine learning, you have to come up with all the algorithms to teach the car to say, if this happens, then do that. Right. Whereas with neural networks, you show the car like a million images or video clips of cars going through everything. And just like human beings, the neural network learns how to drive. And I, I think even Musk has talked about this as like this is the game changer where he sees it really coming. We'll see. I mean, he's been promising yeah. true full self-driving and robo-taxis forever, it seems. But if Tesla has truly cracked the, the, the code on this, and I just ran into some other Israeli startup that's doing the same thing. I'm blanking out on their name right now. But, uh, but in any case, you know, look at how AI has taken... Uh, the world by storm. And and what, when did Chat GPT come out? What, it was like January or something, right? Yeah, and I, I, I'll year. be the first to admit, I feel like uh, for the last few years, especially anything machine learning, AI has been so hyped. And then it was kind of dying down and Chat GPT came back at, or came out. Yeah. And people were all in on that again. And I, I uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think what's is, I really want to see, uh, Tesla's full neural net thing soon because I, I think what they've been doing is really interesting. I'm not, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not convinced. I know this seems like heresy that you actually need radars or lidars all the time, um, mm -hmm. just because it usually comes at like the cost of additional hardware uh, beyond having those units on there. But the the art, I mean, going to what they're doing now actually versus essentially we're going to use machine learning AI to fix all this code we've written and kind of work in this really fragmented code base world could work, but it just doesn't seem actually that scalable or reliable. Um, whereas everything I've seen in the neural net side of stuff gets really creepy real in a, like in a, how good it is. Right. And um, I, I think it is really, I think, my opinion was, I think it's kind of been oversold how much they were using it in the previous full self-driving as like parts of it. Um, but if they truly have gone to a full version of that, this I think is like, now we're talking real full self-driving. Um, and I could easily be proven wrong in another year or two or more, but uh, this is where stuff starts getting really kind of freaky, creepy, depending on your <laughs> take on technology or really, and or really impressive. Um, and I, I think that is the way, I mean, like, like you said, it's been tried a few different ways for decades now. And if we are trying to do it in a world where it has to be a system that's not built for autonomous driving, but it's built for autonomous drivers and existing human drivers, 
you kind of have to have a visual first based approach and you also have to, you can't be in a hard, you can't have hard lines. And I think that's how uh, Waymo and Tesla and a lot of the others were like, okay, we'll make it work. That first 98% is great, but a lot of that 2% are human drivers and wild animals or whatever things that kind of you come across that just, you can't really build code for, but you can build something that can think for itself to realize what it needs to do. And that's where I think we're starting to see kind of actually, even though the investment and money behind autonomous driving has kind of almost <laughs> gone to zero, uh, or at least compared to where it was a couple of years ago, now we're actually starting to see kind of the fruits of it as to what could actually be a usable product in the mainstream. Yeah, look, you know, uh, American capital has very little patience. You know, long-term investment means we're going True. to the end of the year. That That's how they look at yeah. uh, long-term investments. So I really commend General Motors and and Google and Amazon for sticking with it. I believe for it sure. will pay off. And, and if they crack the code and Tesla, um, I mean, they are going to make so much money. Oh, my God. They're going to make so much money if they get this thing to work. And there's your risk-reward. Yes, sure, you're investing sure. billions, you're losing billions right now, but oh my gosh, if if you turn the corner and make it work, boy, you're going to leave everybody in the dust. For sure. And, um, and I am with you on, on the cameras. I'm becoming more and more convinced that cameras are the way to go, um, that you probably do not need LiDAR. LiDAR yeah. is expensive. I just learned recently that cameras can pick up 30x the data points that LiDAR can. And what I think is going to be the magic combination is thermal cameras so that in night, in fog, in rain, they, they don't even know it's there. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that because I, I think people think of cameras as just being our own spectrum. Um, and actually, LiDAR is just a different part of the spectrum. It's just a really much more complicated and expensive way to do it. Um, not that it has benefit, but it just like it just does not seem... Now that we've had all these cars with lidars on them, it's clearly not solving the issue either. It's just right. making it more expensive for cloud software or some other hardware to figure out all this lidar data it's getting to. Um, but I, I'm kind of curious then to the kind of the second part of what we talked about about some of the negative press it's been getting in other cities and your thoughts of how yeah. to either change that or uh, how to maybe reboot it in another city. Well, look, Chase, as you know. Uh, if an electric car catches fire, it's national headlines. <laughs> and you also know that there is 100x ICE vehicles catching fire every single day. Right. You know, we, we, that, that doesn't go into the headlines because cars have been catching fire since cars first came on the planet. And, you know, we're just used to it. You know, it's not news. Whereas an electric car catching fire is news. Same with autonomy. Um if autonomy works just fine, it's it's like, oh, that's cool. And then we're on to something else. But if it uh, blocks a fire truck or, you know, uh, even if another car hits it, it was involved in an accident. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, Kyle Vogt, who runs uh, GM Cruise, uh, had a very interesting statistic that I haven't seen anybody in the media pick up on. He says their subscribership if there is such a word, yeah, uh, yeah. was growing 48% a month in San Francisco. So 
a lot of people are very interested in in using cruises autonomous vehicles sure. in san francisco and uh so yeah i i, I think uh i, I think that, i'm sorry not to cut you out i think yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah, no. because I've, I've seen similar things like that where whether it's waymo or uh cruise in that case where maybe they just want to go for a joyride or just see how freaked out they get by it. But it, everything I've heard generally does seem to be the interest in it. And like the rider base is growing and maybe because it is in San Francisco that people are a little more comfortable with that, but um, be more tech forward generally. But I, I do think that that is never a strong mention in the narrative about what those are. And it kind of goes back to the headlines versus both sides, uh, whether it's right or wrong, it's definitely a, a metric that seems to be consistent with an interest by the public of seeing it more. Obviously, right. I'm sure they want it safe. Yeah, well, look, you have strong constituencies who are against them. The Teamsters, flat out against them. Taxi drivers, completely against them. Anybody who drives a vehicle for a living is for dead sure. set against autonomy. And in many cases, like the Teamsters, uh, have... Uh, a lot of political clout and uh so anyway yeah i mean I, I believe it's going to work uh i it's going to work not just in this country china keeps making more and more progress sure. putting autonomous routes in more and more cities and uh whoever gets a hold of that technology and makes it work is uh going to have the lead in all land transportation mobility yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it, because uh, to assume that this won't go into other technology, if you can do it for a car, uh, to assume it won't be in a train or other things that actually have less variables, uh, I don't think oh, yeah. is correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, uh, the agricultural industry, not, for not sure. the full autonomy that, you know, Cruise, Waymo and all, at all, they've, they've, they've had autonomous tractors for a while. Exactly. You know, the, the biggest ones are yeah. the mining companies. Komatsu and Caterpillar have been running autonomous mining trucks since for uh, over a decade now. Now, that's an easy one. You know, you go down the circular route into the open yeah. pit mine, you come back out again, you know, so there's no there's something in front of you pedestrians. But, yeah, um, exactly. uh, you know, when I talked to Caterpillar and asked them, why, why did you guys go with this? They said, look, our customers uh, want a minimum of an 18 month ROI in any new technology that we bring in. So if we put something new on the truck, they, they'll pay for it if they know it will pay back within 18 months. They said with autonomy, it was six months. Wow. I hadn't heard that before. That, that's, uh, that's a good one. Um, well, I, I do want to just say uh, thank you, John, for how much time you've kind of taken on this. One thing I want to ask you really quickly is um, given, and I've asked this, I think a lot of the people we have, but given your connection to the industry um, and the influence of government uh, in it, and just whether it be the private or the public sector, what are some of like innovative ways that you think either industry or government can kind of help with accelerate the rollout of EVs and battery technology? Well, look, I, th I think they're doing everything that they can right now. I, I look at the IRA, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, we've never seen anything like it, probably in the history of the United States this kind of industrial policy. And it, it, you know, it really should have been called what it really is. It, it's uh, the, uh, the Climate Change Act. It's not the Inflation Reduction right. Act. It's not gonna reduce inflation at all. Um, but it's 
it's kicked off what I call either the California gold rush or the Oklahoma land rush. You know, pick your analogy. Yeah. It is bringing so much investment into the United States. You know, for, for every public dollar that the IRA is kicking in, it's triggering three additional dollars of private investment. That, that's a hell of a good deal for the American taxpayer. And when I was at the EAA, as I keep saying, because I want to be cool, not the IAA in Munich, the, Europe, the Europeans have their hair on fire about this. Now yeah. they think they, they've got to do their own version of the IRA because they recognize so much investment is coming to the United States. And so I would say from a, a government policy standpoint, I, I don't think you can expect, at least in my view, the government to do more than it's done. It, it, it's gotcha. phenomenal what it's done. Now, what we got to do is, as a, as an auto industry, is come out with affordable EVs with the kind of range that people want in and a charging infrastructure uh, to support it. And once that's done, bing, bang, boom, you know, everything's going to go electric very, very quickly once those things are solved. Well, thank you, John. I think that is probably as good of a point to end it on. And I really just want to thank you again for being uh, on as a guest today. And uh, can't recommend your show and your series enough to our listeners to also make sure that they are joining AutoLine, at least, if anything, just for the entertaining commentary and the chats on AutoLine After Hours, for sure. <laughs> right. Thanks, Chase. It's truly a pleasure. And yeah, a lot of great questions, excellent topics to talk about. Well, thank you, John. Looking forward to talking soon. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to visit our website, connectingthegrid.com. There you can listen to our podcasts, contact us about sponsorship, or even be a guest on Grid Connections. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a positive rating on your favorite podcast or video streaming service. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out a lot too. Thank you again, and I look forward to us learning more together soon.